Okay, let's uh, carry on together. Lots of kids having a good time at the back. Louise has created some brilliant resources for the children to enjoy before we get back into kids' work in September. Excuse me. So I referred just now to Life Verses, which is the series we've been doing. Um, Patrick and Mark and Jason, I think have done a great job in just showing us some of the verses from Scripture that have shaped them in a bid that you might get to know us a little bit better, but even more importantly than that, that you might get to know God a little bit better through the transformative work that his word does in our lives. So it's my privilege this morning to kind of bring up the rear uh, and to bring this little series to a conclusion by sharing with you my uh, life verses, or life passage perhaps would be more appropriate, because I'm going to speak from Luke chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, that's where we're going to be in verse 11. If you haven't got a Bible, don't worry, the verses will be on the screen behind me. But Luke 15 contains that wonderfully um, moving and famous passage, the prodigal son. Jesus, uh, just so you know the context, Jesus is speaking to a whole range of people and he's trying to tell them what it means to find and know God for yourself. He tells them three stories, the parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And uh, I think it should be better, it would be better entitled the parable of the lost sons, because there are very much two sons, two brothers, in this uh, magnificent story that Jesus tells. So, Without further ado, let's, let's get into it right now. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he, the servant, said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. 
And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Such a, a rich passage. And I would guess, even if you're brand new to church, you've probably picked up somewhere in the kind of current vernacular the, the, the legacy of the prodigal son. And for those of us who are Christians, I'm sure we've heard this, read this, studied it, heard it preached on many times before. It is such a rich passage. But if I could just summarize maybe one thing that it has taught me over the years, and actually has taught me afresh as I studied it afresh this week, it would be this, that there are lots of ways to leave the home of God, but only one way to return. There are many ways to leave the home of God, but only one way to come home. And let me just explain what I mean by that. And I want to look at the older son first, because although it's known as the prodigal son, it's very much, Jesus is very much telling us a story about two sons. There are two brothers here, and he wants us to really clock that. And I put it to you that the older son does, in a way, also leave home. He does, in a way, also leave home. And let me just tell you a bit of my own story. That's part of the, the theme of this series. It's kind of got a testimonial twist. And I'll tell you my own story. I think you'll see more and more why this passage has uh, shaped me, and I believe it will shape you and God will speak to you this morning as well. Um, I can remember the moment really well. I think I was 23 and I was sat in my car, which was frankly a terrible car. It was a grey Suzuki Swift automatic, appalling car. But I was sat in that car on the phone one evening when my brother called. His name's Richard. And uh, he and I didn't chat on the phone a huge amount. We were kind of, still are, quite blokey in that sense, we phoned to convey information and that's probably nothing else. So I knew that when he called, there probably was a reason for him calling. And sure enough, uh, he said to me, yeah, Phil, I've got some, got some news for you. Um, Anna and I are engaged. And in that moment, which should have been a wonderful moment of celebrating my brother's engagement, I can remember now something of the older brother of Luke 15 just made an appearance in my heart. You see, I'd recently left university. I was still at university trained to be a teacher, but I'd left the main university that I was at. And I'd left uni kind of quite a, a disillusioned Christian, I think, in many ways. I'd gone to uni pretty passionate about God, pretty passionate particularly about helping people who were far from him to come to know him for themselves, to enjoy him, to worship him. Still am very passionate about that. But for various reasons, that kind of goal, that mission that I went to university with, for various reasons, not least the fact that I tried to do it on my own rather than through the family of God, the local church that God intends us to do it through, for that and many other reasons, it was a pretty unsuccessful time. I left seeing very, very little fruit. So like the six lads that I lived with at university, none of them have become Christians. In fact, it seemed to me like I was probably the worst evangelist going because they seemed to be less interested in Christianity than they were when we started our time living together for a couple of years. I was a bit cross with God about it, to be honest with you. And I was also a little bit cross because I had also gone to university hoping to, to meet someone, hoping to meet my future wife. I'd, I'd prayed to those ends and that hadn't happened either. And so when I was sat that evening in my very dodgy Suki Swift, on the phone to my brother, calling me to tell him that he was engaged. The kind of resentment, I think, jealousy, that I felt revealed, looking back on it, that I was developing the same core belief 
that I think you can see at work in the older brother of Luke 15. So our core belief is something that drives our behaviors and reactions, isn't it? It's what lies behind, often, the symptoms that we show. And the older brother in Luke 15 reacts angrily and bitterly. I think we can all see that. But what's driving his response? And you can see the core belief that is driving his response in verse 29. He says, look, angrily, he's speaking to his father, look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you you killed the fattened calf for him. In other words, the older brother's core belief goes along these lines. Listen, I've lived rightly. I've done the right thing. I've worked hard for you. I've avoided public sin. My efforts deserve blessing. I think that's what's driving his response. And my version was not dissimilar. My version was God. I've I feel like I've worked pretty hard for you. I've put myself out at the university on the front line trying to make you known to those who are kind of far off and don't know you. I haven't lived in a sort of Christian ghetto. I've tried to be on the front line of making you known. Yes, I might have got into a fair degree of compromise and sin, but I've, I've tried to, to, to live for you. And I've been praying that I would meet someone, that I'd meet a future wife. And here you are, I was saying in my heart, blessing my little brother when you should be blessing me. That, I think, was kind of what was at work. I do hasten to add, should my brother ever listen to this, that he had not been devouring property with prostitutes, just in case he ever <laughs> listens to this. The analogy doesn't go, that, doesn't go that far. But in that moment, though I was a Christian, a son of the Father, that's what a Christian is, someone in the family of God, a child, an heir of God, Somebody who the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.3, a Christian is somebody who has every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's what it is to be a Christian. Therefore, to lack nothing, to have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Even though that was me, I kind of chose to withdraw from the home a little bit, to leave the home of God in that sense, to kind of live out in the fields, as it were, if you caught that phrase in the, in the reading. Did you notice that? The older brother is not actually in the home during the whole of this parable. He draws near to the home, but he remains outside of the home, despite even the, the exhortations of his, of his father. And I kind of began to live outside the home, still a Christian, but not amongst the blessing and joy of the father, not, not grateful for the lavish grace that would come to me, and not celebrating the grace in other people's lives, but a bit cross and a bit frustrated. In, in, a, in a sense. And I don't know whether already you've begun to identify in any way with the older brother. Because we can leak to the younger brother, but the older brother is very, very important for us to identify with. It's very easy, in my experience, to be a Christian, but just begin to be more out in the field than actually in, in the heart, in the home, enjoying the party that God is throwing in the home. We can be maybe working hard for God. But actually in our heart, it begins just to emerge a slight sense of, well, God, I'm doing this and you're not doing this. And you're blessing him or her. There's all kinds of ways that the older brother heart can make an appearance. It certainly did for me. That's the first way, if you like, to leave the home, is to kind of skirt around on the outside, beginning to believe that our efforts merit blessing. There's a second way, isn't there? 
to leave the home. And the younger brother demonstrates to us pretty dramatically too. Let's go back into verse 12. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So if one way to leave the home of God is kind of to insist that maybe our good efforts merit some blessing and reward, the other way is rather more dramatically, but no less uh, damagingly, to say basically, God, I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with you. There's loads you could draw out about the context of this parable in the first century Middle East, but I'll just draw out one thing, which is this. Because Jesus' listeners would have heard this and been shocked. Because in that, in the ancient, in that ancient culture, and I guess in some more traditional cultures around the world today, to ask for the father's inheritance before he died was utterly shameful. Incredibly dishonoring thing to do to the family. It was akin to saying, effectively, Father, I wish you were dead. That's effectively what the younger son is saying. That would have really shocked uh, Jesus' listeners, perhaps in a way that our more individualistic culture is less shocked by. So there's something at play in this younger, uh, younger brother. And I guess we typically tend to see maybe the younger brother as maybe an example of, I don't know, a, a kind of a version of a secular Londoner. Somebody who might say something along the lines, listen, I don't, I don't believe in God, at least not one that has any authority in my life, and I'm going to live as I want. The guiding principles for that being, as long as it, it kind of feels right, that it's true for me, and that maybe it doesn't harm anybody else. You might have heard something similar from, I don't know, friends or families or colleagues of yours. But we, we Christians shouldn't be too quick as well to miss what is happening in the younger brother's heart. What's his core belief, if you like, that's driving his uh, pretty dramatic departure from the home? And I think it's something like this. I'm kind of speculating, but I think this is reasonable. I reckon he's believing something like, deep down, I don't believe that this, my father's timing is perfect. I don't believe that his inheritance is worth waiting for. I don't believe that his boundaries and his commands are for my good. What's out there looks far better I'm not satisfied with what I have now, so I'm going to go and take what I think is mine. That, I think, is driving this seizing of his inheritance and the reckless living that follows. If I can just relate that back to my own story, um, that moment in the dodgy Suzuki Swift on the phone to my brother. See, not only did the older brother of Luke 15 make a bit of an appearance in my heart, the one that deep down kind of believed that God owed him, that my efforts merited his blessing. At the same time, I think the younger brother of Luke 15 also began to make in a bit of an appearance, or at least began to get into my thinking in the coming months. It was interesting last week, Jason just honed in on that one verse in Romans 12, 2. They're calling us as Christians to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And looking back on it, I think I wasn't taking that seriously. I wasn't taking the reality of the Christian life being a battle seriously. Terry Virgo used to always say to me, the Christian life is not like a battle, it is a battle. And I think I wasn't taking that seriously. I wasn't regularly renewing my mind with the truth of Scripture in order to be able to fight the schemes of the enemy. And so I allowed the enemy, the devil, to do what he's been doing ever since the fall in Genesis 3. What did he say to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? 
one of his favorite tactics, favorite lines. Did God really say? And he uses different versions of it. The one he used with me and maybe he's used with you is, is God really good? Can he really be trusted? He said to me, I think, listen, he hasn't brought any of your friends to faith. You're still as single as you've ever been. You'd be a mug, wouldn't you, to keep on trusting him? You need to go and take what's yours now. I think something of that got into me. I know it did. Oh, I, didn't, I didn't stop believing in God. I didn't renounce my faith in that sense. I didn't uh, deny his existence. I certainly made a conscious decision to kind of leave the home in a different way. In other words, I said to God, as the younger son basically says to his father, God, you do your thing, and I'll go and do my thing. I'm off to get what I can from life because I think bottom down, I don't really trust you to do me good. And so I started, I guess, taking often good things in life and turning them into ultimate things, which is one of the ways the Apostle Paul kind of defines sin in Romans 1. He says that a way of defining sin is rather than giving our worship to the glory of the Creator, we make an exchange in our heart and we start to give our worship and our hearts to created things instead. Often good things and making them ultimate things, giving them, making them the, 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 the uh, item of our worship. I started dating a girl, for example. Not because we had a shared passion for God, which is what I want for all of you who are single, who begin dating relationships. I want you to find somebody with whom you can have a shared passion for God, primarily, should you feel that you're pursuing marriage. I didn't do it for those reasons. I did it because she was pretty and successful and she made me feel good. I didn't trust God to bring me someone else. I continued playing all the sport that I was and training as hard as I was, but not, not for the glory of God, but really because of the reputation, because of the sense of achievement. I started being very driven with sport and training because, I wanted, wanted to, because of what I wanted to get from it. I looked for a, I was a trainee teacher at the time, I looked for a prestigious school to teach at. Not as a means of extending the kingdom of God into a place of, uh, or, or influencing a place for God upon those who will have a disproportionate influence in the world, which I think would be a very reasonable thing to do. I'd started looking for that school to teach at because of the reputation and the credibility and the sense of affirmation and influence that came from it. And so if you just fast forward with me in your mind's eye from the Suzuki Swift kind of three or four years on, I'd moved to this area, southwest London, because of said job in said prestigious school. I had broken up with said girl and caused a fair degree of hurt and confusion in the process. And I was playing said sport. On this occasion, I was playing down at Richmond Rugby Club down the road in a rugby sevens tournament. And it was a, um, like a law society event and I was a ringer playing for a mate's law firm. And it was a very sunny day and it shimmered with the sun down at Richmond Rugby Club, but it also shimmered in a different way. It's one of those events, one of those days, it shimmered with bright, successful, attractive, fit, confident people. Shimmered, if you can understand what I mean. But just on the way home, it just hit me. That shimmering was just a, like a mirage shimmer. It just suddenly hit me how unfulfilling that whole thing was. And I'm not for a moment criticizing being a lawyer or playing rugby or being good looking. That's not what I'm trying to say. 
But just the thing that I was giving myself to suddenly became so unsatisfying, unsatisfactory. It's like having ash in your mouth. I wasn't eating with the pigs as such, like the younger brother in the prodigal son was, but I was spiritually starving. And uh, I remember getting home, just up the road in Weybridge, and sitting on the sofa. I remember thinking, I just really miss, uh, I just really miss God. <laughs> I really miss not doing stuff for God, but I really miss the Father. I miss uh, the embrace. <laughs> and uh, I also remember feeling the sense of guilt and shame that naturally comes when we give ourselves to created things and make them God and the damage that comes from that. Now, the younger son and the prodigal son in the story, when he had his moment, he took action. I didn't actually take much action. I just received more of the grace of God. <laughs> because uh, as some of you know the story, God put a guy in my life, his name was Matt. He was, uh, I just started teaching this school. He was in my department, he was a Christian. He'd really connected. And uh, he just kind of pursued me in a wonderful way and he invited me along to his church shortly after this kind of Richmond Rugby Club moment. And uh, there wasn't a dramatic one-off moment, but over the, over the course of a number of months, I just, oh gosh, just uh, received the embrace of the Father again. It's amazing. It's amazing. So uh, sweet and kind and compassionate. That sense of God just waiting, not like checking his watch or looking down a list of misdemeanors, just waiting with his arms open. Oh, amazing time over a course of a few months. Painful. Sin has consequences. <laughs> Painful. But the welcome home of God is just the most spectacular, spectacular thing. In fact, there's a little slide, I think, that we have, Peter, that um, just kind of brings a more evocative edge to what I'm saying. Charlie Maxey is a uh, member of a church in London. He, he um, drew the drawing on the left of the prodigal son and then drew a similar one of the, of the prodigal daughter just to kind of emphasize the fact that the sonship of God in Christ is a call to men and women, isn't it? To step into sonship and, and being an heir in the family of God and knowing the welcome home of God. And uh, I think it's just beautiful. And for me, it just, summar- it just summarizes what I think Jesus was telling us in this wonderful, wonderful parable. So finally, if there are different ways to leave home, what is the one way to come home? And my hope and prayer is that as I've been talking, you might just have begun to identify, just maybe in some way, some of you, with something about these two extraordinary characters that Jesus paints. And maybe you identify with the younger son in the sense of that dramatic, God, you do your thing and I'll do my thing. Listen, I'm not naive. I've been in church and been the younger son at the same time, giving myself to what he was giving himself to. So I know it's very possible to be in church, but actually being that younger son, living a life that would be anything but uh, acknowledging the lordship of Christ. Or maybe you identify the younger son in a different way, in the sense that you're a Christian and you're not giving yourselves to obviously ungodly things. But maybe you're facing the temptation to believe that the lies of the enemy, with his very clever tactics, the arrows, the schemes that the Bible tells us he uses, which are always lies, that's his favorite tactic, and often go along the lines of, did God really say? 
Maybe you identify with that, what it is to be just sensing that sense of God, just those lies coming in. Is God really good? Can he be really trusted? You've been single for a long time, praying for it for ages. That's what the enemy does. That's his favorite tactic. It's often not dramatic, demonic things. It's subtle, believable lies that we can fight and that we can have victory over. And I'll show you how in a moment. Or maybe you identify with the older brother. That sense maybe of just being a bit out in the fields. Nobody would know. You're working hard for God, perhaps, like the older brother was. Working so hard, doing the right thing, giving himself to, to cultivating the, the land around the father's home. Probably the, probably the one that everybody else in the community looked to as the model son, maybe. But actually, in the heart, there's a sense of something's creeping in. Maybe resentment that God's blessing seems to be elsewhere. Maybe a sense of, God, I'm working so hard. What are you going to do? I've been there since, not just at this time. I know what it is to give yourself to the work of God and to allow the, de- and to allow the enemy even to twist that, to say, you're working pretty hard for God, and what's he doing? So there are all kinds of ways, I think, that this parable can speak to us. But wherever you might be, and whatever degree you may have, if you want to use my language, left the home in some degrees, or left the, 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 the core of the home. You see how in that passage how amazing the home is? Do you miss that? notice that? What celebration, dancing, feasting, and something else that I've forgotten. It's very easy to miss out on the, on the, the wonder of what it is to be right in the embrace of God. It's the same route home. It's three steps to come home, whatever that looks like for you. Repentance, faith, and receiving abundant grace. Firstly, repentance. You see, did you notice the younger son, he wasn't just sorry for his situation. He wasn't just gutted that he got himself into a massive pickle says in verse 18 and verse 21 that he says I have sinned against heaven and before you he was repentant of of what he had done of exchanging the glory of the creator with created things he wasn't just sorry for where he'd landed he was sorry to to God repentance is not just the first step in coming to faith for the first time though it is it's also part of the natural rhythm of Christianity and it brings life Brings life, always. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. I think it's on the screen here. Well, actually, maybe it's not, Peter. Forgive me. Sorry, it's not. He writes, if we, meaning himself and Christians, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance is a great first step, whatever that looks like for you. And the tragedy is the older brother doesn't seem to have taken that. I find it as much of a tragic story as a beautiful story. I want to know how it ends. I I hope, I want to believe that the older son received the beautiful embrace of of his father and came back into the home, but we don't know. Secondly, second step is faith. So the younger son wasn't just repentant. He didn't just stay in the pig's in the in the pigsty being repentant. He got up. He went home. 
He believed that maybe it was possible that he might return to the father's household as a hired hand. So he got up and he took action and he went to the father. And of course, all he thought was that maybe he could be a hired hand. Maybe the father would let him home and he could just work out in the field somewhere and occasionally sneak in after the dinner party was over and grab a bit of food. That's all he wanted and believed in. But there's far more faith that the Holy Spirit would put in your hearts to believe for this morning. Jesus says to the disciples in John chapter 15, verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, I've called you friends. Paul says in Galatians 3.26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. Far off, slightly far off, living brilliantly, living terribly, repentance of faith means we are all children of God, able to receive that embrace. And that's my third step, is that embracing grace. I know what it is to be repentant to believe in the wonderful implications of the cross and all that it brings me, all the regeneration and the, and the transformation and the healing that it brings, and then to stop there. And to kind of think, that's where God's done. I'm on the naughty step for a bit now. Does the father in this parable put his son on the naughty step and say, prostitute, seriously? You can sit outside some for a while. <laughs> What does he do? He puts a ring on his finger. That's so profound. The ring is the family symbol. Puts a ring on his finger, robes on his shoulder, shoes on his feet, kills the fattened calf and throws a massive party. Will you go the next step? It's not just repentance and faith. It's embracing grace and receiving the embrace. So many Christians, stop, including me over many times, stop there. And we kind of think, well, yeah, I know. I'm forgiven. I'm restored. We can go again. That's it. That is not what Father's like. He's ready for you, again, afresh, with an embrace, with a welcome to bring healing and change and restoration to set you up to extend the kingdom of God in wonderful ways. Isn't that amazing? That younger son will have then known the commissioning to represent the Father's name again. Again, that would have shocked the hit Jesus' culture. He should be written out of the family inheritance. He's brought such shame and dishonor on his family in a very traditional shame on a culture. And yet, the ring on his finger, the father says, you're one of mine. You represent the family name again. That's what it is to be a Christian. Embrace grace. And embrace grace in the knowledge that we have a perfect older brother. See, unless you know that there is a perfect older brother, the one that we all need, the one that who did live a perfect life, the one that who worked so hard for the Father, the one that who did everything right, but didn't just observe us in his perfection and his rightness, but actually went into the filth of the pigsty to pick us out. Jesus Christ, the perfect older brother, when you know that, oh, you drink from grace. You realize it's been done. But there's another older brother in the story. There's a third brother in the story. Without him, we don't get to come home and receive the embrace. The older brother who did live perfectly, but he didn't stay or steer and observing, allowed himself to be tortured and killed, taken into the worst of humanity to pluck us out and give us a ring on our finger and a robe on our shoulder and shoes on our feet and a hope and a future. So, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> Well, I guess step one is maybe Emma to come and just help us to respond. Um, 
And maybe just a helpful way would be just to close our eyes. Um, then we just, it's between us and God for the moment. And what I'm going to do is pray a short prayer. I'll try and keep it short. And just then allow you some space to talk to God in the quiet of your heart. If you are yet to ever taste the embrace of the Father, you're not a Christian. It comes through repentance, faith in Jesus Christ, perfect work for you. And you step into the embrace of God. If you are, as many of us are, but you know in different ways there's a possibility or a reality of you just stepping out of the home, please would you use my prayer and use these moments of just quiet and music to talk to God in the quiet of your heart. Jesus, thank you so much for telling us this parable. (laughs) Thank you so much for showing us what the Father is really like and for showing us what we're like. (laughs) And Jesus, thank you so much for being the perfect older brother, the one who, as we're united to you in faith, becomes our older brother. We're seated alongside in heavenly places in the family, in the kingdom of God, the place where this party is taking place. Jesus, thank you for making that possible. And I thank you too for sending us your Holy Spirit who would comfort and counsel and remind us of truth and help us to step into truth and believe truth and enjoy for the first time or a fresh time the inheritance that is ours. Security, peace, purpose, joy, unconditional love and the opportunity to be an ambassador for the family name. Holy Spirit, would you bring the right truth to mind for each person here that they, that we would know how to respond to your pursuit of us in these moments. Thank you, God.